Priestley Goth Podcast is the podcast of the Reverend Larry Campbell's and OJCR. This is a podcast in search of understanding. Priestley Goth looks to connection, relationship, boundaries, borderlands, and internecies as movements and places of understanding. Come and seek with me that we may find. Welcome to the Priestley Goth Podcast. What is it to have an awareness of God? How might I or you talk about God and awareness of God? I have no sense of God right at this moment speaking this to you. And I have had profound awareness of God in my life. Recently, I have noticed that I have had throughout my life both an awareness of God and God's presence and an experience of the lack of God. I hadn't been fully aware that this was my experience until in the past few months finding that once again I have no sense of God and found myself in a space of deep doubt. I did have some inkling earlier than this. In June of 2017, a UCC pastor friend of mine, Matt Fitzgerald, tweeted a poll. Generally speaking, which is true for you? I feel God's presence. I feel God's absence. I tweeted back, I had a great difficulty answering this poll. It depends on what exactly is meant by quote-unquote feel, quote-unquote presence, quote-unquote absence, and quote-unquote God. Neither answer fits. He responded, absence equals no God with you or no ability to apprehend. Feel equals apprehend. God equals I am in all caps. Presence equals confidence in God's availability. And then he went on to tweet, go with your gut. I replied, I did, I went with absence. But also I have a Derridian view of the play of presence and absence, especially when it comes to God. He said, yes, Absence can have the intensity of presence, provided that we know its contours and long for a return. I let my friend have the last word. At the time, all I could muster in myself was that presence said too much and absence said too little, as far as my own awareness of God was concerned. In this episode, I will explore the contours of the sense of lack of God, while I'm also in the midst of one of the strongest moments of this awareness of no God. Although Trude introduced some terms of my own invention, theotic awareness as a sense of God or God's presence, and atheotic awareness, a sense of a lack of God or God's absence. The focus of this episode will be on the atheotic awareness, 
and I'll now be outlining atheistic awareness affinities to theistic negative theology and other mystical approaches, but I'll focus mainly on the relationship between atheism and this sense of lack of God. Looking back on that moment and that interchange between Matt Fitzgerald and I, I'm realizing I was also probably trying to come to terms with that on some level my entire life I've had this experience of the awareness of lack of God and strong sense of God's presence. At different times in my life I've dealt with these two awarenesses or experiences of God in different ways. In my childhood, from my recollection, I easily moved between the awareness of no sensation or intuition of God and then into profound moments of an awareness of God. Though mostly I seem to remember that I lived between those two states of awareness. I didn't live in either one consistently. I more lived in between them as a child. But there were other times in my life where a loss of any sense of God also led to periods some longer and more intense than others of doubt about Christian truth, about claims about God and God's existence, and also of Jesus of Nazareth and a number of spiritual realities. Also, this awareness of God's absence has also led me into mystical approaches to God in which negation of divine attributes is seen as a means of encounter with God beyond categorization or image. For many years, and for actually much of my time as a pastor, it was this via negativa, this negative theology, that was the center of my faith and sense of God. Speaking about God is tricky, even if we're talking about having no sense of God. So, what do I mean by God? The theologian and philosopher Jean-Luc Marion, in his book God Without Being, shows how speaking of God as a being or existing is problematic. God, in Marion's view, is the source of being and as such is outside of existence or being. God brings things into being and as such isn't a being. Language for such a source of being that isn't within the set of being turns out to be tricky. We find an ex possible expression of this trickiness in the Hebrew scriptures. When Moses encounters God, Moses asks God's name, and God's reply is enigmatic. I am that I am. This word, this name, Judaism leaves unnameable, unpronounceable. In a sense, it's a name that isn't a name, representing a being that isn't a being but is being itself, or in other words, the source of all being. So when I say that I lack 
experience of God, I'm not saying I doubt that there is a supernatural being with whom I've lost contact, or whom I doubt exists. Uh, certainly, there's doubt in my current experience, but the doubt isn't the cause of the sense of God's lack or absence. The doubt isn't the primary experience. Even when I find myself without God, what I mean by God is that which is beyond existence, that which brings our language and thought and being to an end. The absence of God in my current state of awareness is a total lack of any sense that there is a source of all being, beyond being. As my definition of God might suggest, there are features of this awareness of God that run alongside mystical or negative theology, the via negativa. My experience is similar to accounts of the soul's progress with God and the mysticism of St. Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. They both describe a state of the soul in which all sensation of God ceases. St. John of the Cross called this the dark night of the soul. I hesitate to claim this as a dark night of the soul because St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross still have a confidence that there is God even in the midst of a loss of all sense of God. My experience differs in that in having no sense or awareness of God, I have no confidence that there is God of whom to be aware. This returns us to the affinity of my current atheotic awareness with atheism. This awareness of the lack of God, what I'm calling atheosis, has some affinity with atheism. Though um, in my doubts throughout my life, around this having this experience, I've never felt led to embrace atheism. The closest I came to doing so was in college, and in college I did interpret the awareness as solely simply doubt and as a form of atheism. What puzzled me in college was that this atheistic moment was accompanied by a persistent vision of Christ crucified in the midst of a debris of a cumbering building floating off into the void. For a variety of reasons, I made a leap into faith at that time. What I'm finding in this moment is that that leap has proven to be unsustainable. As the tweet exchange between my pastor friend and I showed, it was already unraveling a few years ago, though I had yet understand what was happening. Why don't I call this experience a type of atheism? Partly, it's because I'm aware that I've also had an awareness of God's presence. Though in this particular moment, and in various times having this moment of sense of no God, I can't access that sense of God's presence. The reason why I am distinguishing the atheotic awareness from atheism is that in my experience, especially from my childhood experience, theotic and atheotic awareness are like two platforms across an abyss connected by a thin wire. At least this is an image that has come to me as I've thought about my overall experience 
I wonder if other people have similar experiences. There is this connection, this tight wire, this tightrope, so to speak, connecting the two platforms, connecting these two experiences. What I think we tend to do is not see the connection. Uh, we see them as opposing experiences. And when we do that, we put them into these categories of theism and atheism. And I think for some of us, perhaps most, uh, most of the time, you're living on either one or the other, or maybe only experience one or the other, either an authaotic awareness or a theotic awareness. But I also wonder if there are other people like me who have both awarenesses, but the way we talk about it, the way when we, if we hear someone say, oh, I don't know about God, or I don't feel like I have an experience of God, we immediately go to the space of atheism. In fact, as I reported this to my wife and some of my friends, that's where they went. Oh, you're having an atheistic moment. You're doubting. You're not believing in God. Um, and I didn't feel that that was entirely accurate. But also to understand why I don't think this is atheism or why in this state I don't and haven't ever embraced atheism, we need to examine a particular presupposition within atheism. For this, I turn to the philosopher and atheist Gary Walter and his recent book, Atheism, A Guide for the Perplexed. This book is a pretty good account of atheism in that he attempts to give an account of the varieties of atheism while also attempting, while also giving a reasonable account for why one would be an atheist, and then carefully outlining the philosophical position of atheism. For the purposes of this episode, I draw our attention to Walter's discussion of materialism, or what he calls naturalism, as the underlying worldview of atheism. It is on this point that even in doubting that God, that I also doubt atheism. Walters says this, the worldview that undergirds atheism is one whose deepest core belief is that the natural world is all there is. The theoretical model generated by the core belief is sometimes called the materialism, quote unquote. But a better label, for reasons we'll see shortly, is quote unquote naturalism. Naturalism, in the atheist sense, needs to be distinguished from what is often called scientific or methodological naturalism. The latter is the basic investigative principle of the sciences. Only those explanations for phenomena which can be scientifically tested should be sought or accepted. And this automatically precludes any hypothesis that rests its case in part or in whole on quote-unquote occult non-natural postulates. Scientific testability, in turn, is defined by the hypothetical deductive method, which consists of observing natural phenomena, formulating a hypothetical explanation for them, predicting future event occurrences based on the hypotheses, and testing the accuracy of the prediction. The conclusions arrived at are always susceptible to further scrutiny, revision, or rejection. The mark of a good scientific conclusion, in fact, is that it remains testable, hence falsifiable. 
Likewise, statements about the world based on subjective or intuitive appeals that are beyond confirmation are inappropriate objects of scientific scrutiny. They may be, in fact, true, the method methodological naturalist will allow, but they can't be scientifically tested. Not all methodological naturalists, then, are atheists. But all atheists are both methodological and what might be called, quote-unquote, ontological naturalists. They don't just insist that scientific, scientific hypotheses must be kept free of occult explanations. They argue that scientific explanations are legitimate because they, there is nothing in reality that can't be understood ultimately in material, physical, chemical, naturalistic terms. For the ontological naturalist, there is nothing apart from nature, and nature is self-originating, self-explanatory, and without overall purpose. This last sentence is something I've never been able to embrace, even in a state of a lack of God and doubt. Walters continues, some naturalists are ruthlessly reductionistic. They're sometimes called strict or scientistic naturalists, believing that all phenomena, including mental states, are nothing more than physical states. But others argue for a quote-unquote emergent naturalism, which recognizes that certain emergent complex phenomena, such as mental states, can't be totally explained in terms of lower levels of complexity. I find this emergent naturalism a more reasonable form of it than the strict naturalism, but still, I can't embrace this view. Walters continues, instead they require explanations appropriate to their level, but explanations which are nonetheless naturalistic. Both reductionistic and emergent naturalists are monists, who hold that naturalistic explanations can and should be applied across the board, although not necessarily in a reductionistic way in order to develop integrative generalizations. Walter recognizes that naturalism isn't necessarily a tidy and convincing presupposition as it might seem to some. He continues, It's been noted by more than one philosopher that even though we live in an age in which naturalism is the going paradigm, especially among scientists and philosophers, there's remarkably little precision about just what is meant by either the word naturalism or nature. Naturalists are generally good at providing negative descriptions of their position. Thus, Kai Nelson, Nielsen says that naturalism denies that there are any spiritual or supernatural realities. There are no supernatural realities transcendent to the world." Unquote. But not so good at positive descriptions naturalism, quote, is the view that anything that exists is ultimately composed by physical components, unquote. What remains murky is how to understand, quote, unquote, physical, beyond the stipulative claim that it's the opposite of, quote, unquote, spiritual. What is the nature of nature? How do I identify what's natural and what's not? 
What standards can be, we invoke that are, aren't circular? These are the sorts of questions which prompted Roy Wood Sellers to characterize naturalism as quote-unquote vague and quote-unquote general, a tendency rather than a clear belief. Philosopher Barry Stroud expresses this ambiguity well by comparing the word naturalism to world peace. Naturalism can be described as the belief that the natural world is a closed system. Nothing exists outside of it, so nothing influences it from without. By contrast, Supernaturalists embrace a worldview whose deepest core beliefs is that reality is dualistically open, divisible into natural and supernatural realms that interact in one way or another. They agree, for the most part, with naturalist description of the physical world, but disagree with the claim that there's nothing apart from nature. Alters continues later on. The worldview of ontological naturalism is the foundation on which the atheist ultimately denies the existence of God and the supernatural. Although it's sometimes identified by its proponents with science, I hope enough has been said here to suggest that naturalism, although rightfully associated with the scientific outlook, is also metaphysically speculative. And that commitment to it hinges on temperament and desire as well as rational appraisal the way things are. Neither of these factors necessarily falsify it, much less point to the truth of supernaturalism. Walters, in this concluding word on naturalism, highlights the problem I have with atheism even when I have no sense of God. I don't have the temperament or the desire for naturalist appraisal the way things are. I find said appraisal suspect. The certainty that what can be understood and explained empirically or what can we call natural is all that exists, namely what can be observed, studied, and comprehended by our human minds and consciousness seems to me to be an incredible assertion. In addition, naturalism misidentifies my understanding of God, for God isn't a supernatural being, though God, if God, can be posited transcendentally as undergirding and the source of all entities, natural or supernatural. So there are two difficulties I have with this atheistic presupposition of naturalism. Even if there is no God, I'm not convinced that what we mean by nature or material or the physical is all that is, and God isn't part of the set of being, but is outside it as the source of all being. Side note, in my skepticism about naturalism, as defined by Walters, I find I'm not denying scientific truth. I wholeheartedly affirm that science has come to and continues to provide accurate descriptions of the physical, natural, material parts of the universe. But I simply am saying that this affirmation hardly means that what science can understand, describe, and explain, and what we call nature, is all that there is. We may be able to describe and understand the chemical makeup of loving, but that doesn't really tell me what love is. Even in my doubt, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me to say that what we might call natural or material or physical, granted quantum physics gives a wonky account of what is the makeup of this thing we call nature or the universe. Still, I'd say that even if quantum mechanics could give some explanation to love, it still wouldn't account for love. 
Even without God, I look at the world and say, it's an odd thing to assert that one human method of thought and investigation to discover and describe all that there is. There are things of which I am aware, beauty, goodness, truth, love, that I can neither see nor touch nor manipulate, that to my mind are not natural or physical as such. Beauty and goodness and love, etc., aren't understood through empirical accounts of how and what we human organisms experience of them. More pointed, I would say that we certainly don't gain an understanding of them through describing what causes the mental states of the human organism in associating with or experiencing goodness or love or beauty or truth. This probably sounds like some form of Platonism, and it might be. Certainly I know my philosophy well enough to recognize the affinity. But I'm not really convinced by Plato's account of the forms, etc. wouldn't say that it has nothing to do with it, with Plato. I am saying that I think beauty and the good and truth and love are an essence. I'm not saying that a beautiful object is in its beauty, a shadow of the form of beauty in the realm of the forms. To some extent, I'm not sure what I'd say is the connection between beauty and something that is beautiful. Though I recognize that Plato's view is one way of explaining this connection when one asserts that beauty is an essence. I don't though I don't have to say that this is the only way, nor even to conclude Plato's view is the most convincing way to say something that beauty or love transcends instantiations of love and beauty. I also admit this is a peculiar way for a modern or postmodern to think of such things. But I would also point out to other to postmodernist philosophers like Badiou and Derrida, especially the later Derrida, when he talks about justice and hospitality, for how this might be done in our time. Empirical and scientific knowledge may be able to tell me the physical and natural explanation for love and beauty and other states of my consciousness, but it doesn't actually explain nor can it give an account of my love for my wife. Love, love for people and why we love them, the whole reality of love remains transcendent, even in my doubt and lack of any sense of God. All that to say that even with no sense of God and in my doubt, I'm not a naturalist or a materialist. Even without a sense of God, I still have a sense that what we seek to understand and study empirically that the sciences doesn't encompass what is. While science is the most useful source of knowledge, is the most useful source of knowledge, but is subject to empirical observation, repeated experimentation doesn't necessarily encompass all we are as humans, let alone all that is. From my perspective, even if there is no God, there are things beyond what we can empirically study with scientific method. And I find this highly likely. I also find it incredible in the literal meaning of the word and unfounded to say that what our brain can comprehend and the methods one small organism on a planet in one corner of the observable universe could in its thought and consciousness encompass and comprehend all possible existent things and ways of being. And so this is part of what I'm doing in this podcast, is to offer some reflection on the theotic and authotic awareness and the possible connection that may be very thin.
and maybe a tightrope, a tight wire kind of connection that can maybe not be seen. What is the relationship between the atheotic awareness and the theotic awareness? In that sense, there is, to my view, possibly some connection between theism and atheism that there's some perhaps underlying experience that when we see these two experiences, the experience or the awareness of no sense of God and the experience of awareness of sense of God or a conviction that there is God or a conviction that there is no God, maybe I am unique in this experience. Maybe this trying to connect these two sets of awarenesses won't make sense to you. But this is the image I have for this conversation of theotic and atheotic awareness, and why earlier I was spending time distinguishing it from atheism, that is the atheotic. The image I have is as if there are these two cliffs separating each other some distance apart and platforms jutting out from them. And over this is some gap, some abyss, a void, perhaps. And between the two platforms on these two cliffs, the theotic cliff and the atheotic cliff, the theotic platform and the atheotic platform, is a thin wire, a tightrope, connecting the two, and allowing for communication, for crossing, for transportation between the theotic and authotic awareness. This means to account for my experience, I need to go beyond common accounts of theism and atheism. In doing this, I suggest that there is a theotic awareness, some sense of quote unquote God as the source of being. This may lead one to any number of types of theism, including polytheism or pantheism or dualistic or non-dualistic understandings of God. On the other hand, there is also an atheotic awareness. Both senses may be present in one person or may fluctuate between them, or one may fluctuate between them, in which one has no sense of God or source of all being. The theotic experience would be an awareness of God, of the divine, and of the sacred. The creator, the Brahma, the all-soul, the mysterium tremendum. In my own life, these have been in mystical experiences and visions. This would be the experience of God's presence. An all-theotic awareness or experience is a sense of there being no God. All-theotic awareness is a lack of a sense of the divine or the sacred. There is no sense of mysterium tremendum. In this is a lack of sense of any sense of origin or creator. That the sense of asserting that there is an origin or creator just does not seem to be true. Because there's no sense of it. I know the theotic awareness. I've had an experience of God, of the divine and of the sacred. I've had moments of a profound sense of that which is beyond the known and the noble universe. 
beyond what can be explained scientifically and materially, beyond even what may be unseen and unknowable, beyond language and thought. I've had encounters, mystical visions, and had a sense of presence that could not be located in the created world, seen or unseen. I also know an atheotic awareness. This experience or sense, I find both words falter in talking about my orientation around this, of the absence of God, the divine, the sacred. It is a sense that there is nothing to undergird or that is the source of all that is. One may want to say this was an experience of just the world, of natural, of the profane, but there was still a sense that even in the absence of God, that the natural order, what could be studied and verified empirically, wasn't all that there was. But there was no other than being, no source, no unifying consciousness. For most of my life, there has been a tension between these two opposing experiences, theotic and all-theotic both of which seemed equally true, but incommensurate. Each in the moment in which I was aware of them, theotic or the atheotic awareness experience, were usually all-encompassing. Yet there were also times where I was able to hold the two together or in tension. For a time, negative theology was one such way to hold the two together and speak of the two awarenesses. Both were experiences or senses that what lies at the depth in the middle, what encompasses all that is seen and unseen. Of course, in the theotic awareness, the sense is that there is a presence beyond understanding. In the all-theotic awareness, there's a sense of an absence or a lack of source or origin that remains equally incomprehensible as the sense of presence and origin. In my experience, there is a tension created by an unshakable sense that there is something true about both the theotic and off-theotic awareness. And as right now, I have no way to assert both as simultaneously true. At this moment, the off-theotic awareness, whatever account I may or may not ultimately give for it, is that there is no God, or is, in some, or is it some moment or movement on the spiritual path? Whatever it is, my sense of things, and it is, it is my sense of things right now, and it is all I experience of God in this moment in time. My experience now is a total lack of any sense of God. As we continue this exploration of theotic and atheotic awareness, we will next look at the leap into faith, or more commonly, leap of faith. Thirty years ago, in the moment of confrontation between a powerful atheotic awareness and a theotic awareness in the form of a vision of the crucified Christ, I took the leap. But in the last year to two years, I've been finding that the leap could no longer sustain a theotic awareness. Doubts, questions, and uncertainties were seeping and then rushing in until I found myself in the deepest moment of atheosis in my adult life. What is this moment of the leap? How did it sustain a theotic awareness and why might it have become unsustainable after 30 years? Kierkegaard will be one of our companions on this exploration, of course, but there are some other companions as well. All next time on The Priestly Goth.
Podcast. Mm-hmm.